0: Thanks, Ian. Uh, Good evening, everybody. As Ian said, my name is Kyle. Uh, Just give me 10 seconds here to set myself up. But as I'm doing that, let me just say that I have been uh, sick for the last eight days. And uh, sadly, I, which is not great for a preacher coming to a bunch of people he doesn't know, I had literally no voice on Wednesday, pretty much. Um, And so it's a miracle it feels like that I, I have a voice. And there's many prayers that I have for you guys tonight, you know, that you hear about Jesus and you learn a lot, but probably my biggest prayer is that you can just hear me by the end of my, of my time talking tonight. Um, and so you're welcome to, to uh, pray along in the background, and my lovely assistant Luke is going to top up my water, if needs be, um, as we go. But um, I, don't, I've, I think there's maybe three of you, four of you in the room that I might have met before, and so I just wanted to briefly um, introduce myself um, and just show you my family which I'm so stoked that we are all here for the weekend. Um, that's my wife, Michelle, and my two boys, Harrison, the oldest, and Andrew, the youngest. Um, and I just want to tell you guys, we're so stoked to be with you. Um, um, our little family motto that we tell our little boy, the one who can kind of understand it, is um, you're part of this family, and this family serves God's people. That's what we do. And so we're trying to tell him, we're in East London this weekend, and we're here serving God's people. And if you ask him tomorrow, he's going to say, we're here to play. But um, we're, we're working on it. We're working on it. Um, but uh, <clears throat> just one quick story from this morning just so you know how how very normal some of us are that are up here speaking and just a bad parenting fail from from me um uh, i had i i i had been woken up i didn't wake up but i had been woken up quite early and um i was trying to make coffee and just kind of go, go over tonight's talk and my oldest harrison has just gotten to this thing this week about um old clothes that no longer fit him and they're going to be for his brother And he's just obsessed with trying to put them on. And so he's been pulling out, he's been pulling out onesies and shorts and shoes and none of them, none of them fit him. And he gets so frustrated and he just, there's just the moan, like the the drone sound consistently and then the plea for help. Daddy, help me get this on. And it's been the whole week and we've tried all sorts of stuff and it's just, it's been driving us crazy, to be honest. And it, it, it kind of went to a head this morning where he, he was trying to put on, I think, the smallest pair of shoes that we have in the house that do not fit his feet. And he's literally at my feet being like, help me, help me. And I got to that point and I just said, Harrison, bro, listen here, listen, buddy. I, I don't know how else to say this. I really don't. I really don't. I cannot help you. And there is no human being on this planet, my boy, who is going to be able to help you. And then I, I started going too far and I said, to be honest, Harrison, you need a miracle, my boy. I, and I, I, said, I said this, you need a miracle. God is the only person who can make shoes issues. That, and if you want to make them fit, my boy, you need to go into your room and you need to pray to God. And you need to, and you need to make them fit. And, and I carried on making my coffee and he walked off. And then 10 seconds later, my wife and I hear him in the room. Father God, please help me. And Michelle was like, are you serious? This is, this is how you want to teach our boy to go and pray. So I ran through and I was meant to apologize, but I, I taught him about the sovereignty of God. Son, I, I don't think you're praying in God's will. And I don't think this is this is not what he has for you. And that's all that's all the true story from this morning, guys. Okay. Um, okay. let's let let's dive into what we're gonna actually talk about tonight because that has nothing to do with it. Um I've been given the topic of speaking on sexual formation, sexual formation. And um, let me just quickly tell you where we're going. Uh, the first is I want to I spend, uh, and it's kind of going to be in three parts of this talk really. The first part, I want to just talk about formation because it might not be language, it might not be concepts that many of you are familiar with, and so I want to get us on the same page. Just in, in general, what is formation? What are we talking about there? Then we're going to talk about the uniqueness of sexuality when it comes to our formation, um, and that'll be kind of the second third of the talk. And then after that, we're going to look at four practical examples that I think really tie all these things together. And hopefully this will make a lot of sense and just be a helpful introductory um, time together tonight that sets up the rest of the, the, the weekend. Um, but what I'd like to do is just read First uh, Thessalonians 4 verses 1 to 8. And we're going to sort of pick this text apart bits and bits as we, as we go this evening. Thank you. <laughs> not Luke. Thank you, not Luke. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore whoever whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And that's God's word to us tonight. Amen. like Ian said, I just want to point out here the Apostle Paul, who's writing this, it's very clear, you can see it. He has a starting point, he has a puzzle box that he is using to make sense of, uh, in, in this text, um, sex and sexuality. You're right at the end there, you'll see, he just says, What we're talking about here is, is from God, the person who gives us his Holy Spirit. And so that's where he, that's where he starts. But let's kick off with this question What is formation? What is formation? This might be a new phrase to some of you in the room, um, or many of you in the room, and <coughs> it's not a phrase that um, I think I grew up with in my sort of um, tr- uh, tr- church background and things like that. And, and it can mean quite different things to different people. If you go and Google, "What do Christians mean by about uh, about what do Christians mean by formation," you you can get some different answers. And so, um, uh, you might hear this: that sanctification is based on the objective word of God, whereas spiritual formation, the word we're using here, is based in the subjective, intuitive, mystical inner self. That is not what I mean. That is not what we're talking about here. In many ways, I think what some of you might know is the term of sanctification and formation, I think are similar terms that are getting at the same thing. And so let me just start explaining that. Um, The word sanctification, which you would have heard in our text there, we'll chat about it now, um, it means to be set apart, it means to take something that's, that's common and to make it holy. And um, when it comes to our lives with God, there is, there is a past tense version of that at our salvation. So Paul, at the very beginning of his letter to the Corinthians, he says, to the church uh, of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, to those that in a moment were made holy by God in, in, in one way. you're sanctified. But there is also a very real... Progressive sanctification, where all of us who are Christ followers are on a process and on a journey of actually becoming holy in our lives. I hope that makes sense. Okay, we are image bearers of God as Christ followers, who who are growing towards the ultimate image of God, Jesus. We are being conformed into Christ likeness. One theologian said, and I loved it: "What we're being set apart is we're being set apart." from the old creation that we were a part of and we're being set apart for the new creation that we are heading towards maybe many of us in this room would agree that um, how this happens is actually a weird mysterious interplay between god's work in us through his holy spirit and our partnership with him as we give ourselves to discipleship and all its sort of various forms and let me just say i'm not contending for any particular language here tonight. Um, so you, we can talk about spiritual formation, progressive sanctification. We can simply talk about becoming like Jesus. That, that's really what we're talking about here. Um, but what I do want to contend for and just be clear on is it's is, is, is what's at the heart of this. What's at the heart of this? And what's at the heart of this, and even in this whole topic of sexuality, is not simply what could be the dry sort of moral question of what is right and what is wrong. Now, that's a good question. Hear me. We need truth. Ian just said this. I love truth. Um, we need to give ourselves to the right stuff. And we're going to be chatting about what are, what are truths and what are lies this, this whole weekend. But what we're, what we're talking about tonight is, is a little bit more than that, in a sense. It's a little bit deeper than that. And it's, it's actually asking the question, who are we becoming? As individual people, As individual people, ask yourself, who am I becoming? So Paul says here in our in our text, it'll go up on the screen, I think. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your becoming holy. And I think in many ways, this is a huge part of why Jesus died for us in the first place. Yes, he died to save us from wrath, you know, for our sins. And he's died so that we could spend eternity together with him. But he's also died to restore our humanity to us. That sin has broken and distorted to free us from the sin, the lies, the deformation that has happened to us, all the stuff in our lives that really hurts us. It hurts our ability to enjoy God and to glorify him. And it hurts other people and our relationships around us. You'll see Paul writes there in verse one, he says, "Um, you ought to walk and to please God just as you were doing. And we hope that you do so more and more. There's that idea of progress and growth. It's practice. It's a process. And what's huge tonight, I also want to get across, is that this process doesn't just happen through doctrine and through teaching. Now, obviously, <laughs> I love that. Here we are. We're doing a whole weekend of of teaching. But actually, just having teaching in your life is not going to be the silver bullet that, that, that just sends you on that journey and, and, and makes things go from, point A to point B. More courses, more Bible studies, more podcasts, more books are not necessarily going to to, to be the answer that actually helps us grow in holiness. I want more of that stuff. I love that stuff. But actually, most of us already have a massive knowledge gap. We've got so much knowledge, and what we actually do with that knowledge is all the way down here. So we can keep increasing the knowledge. We can keep going for it, but that might just increase the gap. Um, Many of us probably have enough knowledge to actually live pretty pretty good lives that God wants us to live in relationship with him. We've, we've probably got more than enough in many ways, in some ways. No, but God wants us to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word, like James says. Paul says we need to watch our life and our doctrine. Both these things are vital in who we are becoming. And maybe in, in the very western influenced part of the world, we have majored on teaching for a large part of, of the church for the last uh, couple of hundred years. And, and I get why that happened and why we had to recover that when things had had, had gone pair in that area, but we're not just shaped by, by truth and doctrine. We're shaped by practices. We're shaped by habits. In some ways, more so. In some ways, more so. So much of who we are as individual people has been caught and not taught in our lives. Not as Christ followers, just as, just as human beings. We saw things modeled to us by others. We were inspired by things. And that's what shaped us, and that's what's molded us, and that's what set us on trajectories, your career, whatever it might be. Our hearts were ignited for things that we saw and we experienced and we participated in, so we gave ourselves to things. And it's not ultimately, actually, oh, the voice is going already. It's not ultimately what we know in our head that really is the driving force in our lives. It's what is deep within us, in our hearts, what's sometimes sunk down from our heads, but also sometimes what's just there under the surface and we might not even know it in our hearts, in our desires, in our affections, in the things that we genuinely love. And I think one of the biggest realizations for me in the last couple of years is the the idea that our affections and our hearts and what we love actually gets birthed through habits far more than we would think. It's the things that we give ourselves to. And you just think about different different cultures and how, and how we eat different foods and we enjoy different flavors. And um, we enjoy that because we've grown up in that. You take one child and you pluck him out straight away and you pluck him in another culture that he has no experience of, but as soon as he starts immersing himself in that culture, he'll grow up to enjoy, typically, the food of that culture. It's not something that he, that he just knew up here. He was immersed in it and it shaped him and it shaped his loves and it shaped his heart's. And you know this as well, maybe if you give yourself to eating something, you can eventually acquire a taste for that thing. That's where the phrase acquiring taste comes from. And so I thought, um, let me just quickly throw up uh, three quotes from uh, a a book on this that I found really helpful. I read it recently. The book is by James K.A. Smith, and it's called um, You Are What You Love. And Let me just read these quotes because they capture this so well. The orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits of desire. Learning to love God takes practice. And he's quoting someone else here. He says, your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. This is because our action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves, which, as we've observed, are habits we've acquired through the practices we're immersed in. That means the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. I might be learning to love a telos, something that I'm not even aware of and that nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate our heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what we love. And I think the recovery of Spiritual habits and practices is realizing how much the things that we do, not just the things that we learn, are actually shaping us. And can I give you a little thought experiment that um, I think Ian actually um, wrote for our membership course a few years ago. Can I ask you to just close your eyes for a second? Close your eyes and pick a day from earlier in the week. Think about that day, whatever day it is. What did you do first thing in the morning when you woke up? Did you reach over your phone? <clears throat> did you work out? Did you hit the news button? Did you read the news? You can be totally honest with yourself. You don't need to. You're not going to share this with anyone. As you drove around, <clears throat> as you were commuting to work or to studies, the shops, whatever it is, what did you listen to? And what did you think about? What or who? Was the thing or the person that had the greatest influence on you that day?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What or who made the biggest difference to your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions that day? And what people did you have interactions with? Picture some of them. What occupied your thoughts? And then, if you had free time, how did you spend it? What did you maybe do in in the evening? Did you watch TV? Did you watch Netflix? Did you spend time reading? Were you on social media? Were you hanging out with friends? Were you with your family? And then how did you get ready for bed? What was the last thing that that you did before putting your head on your pillow and closing your eyes? Okay, you can all open your eyes now. The idea here is this is not a moment as a, as, a, as a pass-fail moment, but it is a moment of reflection. And I want to ask you the question, if you had to do that day of your life over and over again for the rest of your life, who would you be at the end of your life? It's a really good reflective question. Thank you, Ian, for when you, when you came up with it. <clears throat> See, we, we make our habits in our, in our lives, but then what happens is they start to make us. And it's observably true. if. If, if you take someone who exercises every single day, they're going to be very different to a person who sits on their couch the entire day and eats chocolate every day. Those two trajectories shape two very different people over the long haul. One's probably going to be healthier and, and live longer. But what we, what we practice every day, the things that we become good at are the things that ultimately define who we are becoming. So that, that's formation. Is that clear? Is that helpful? Does that make sense? Maybe some of you are more confused than when we started. I really hope not. But I hope that is helpful and I hope that makes sense. And what I want to do now is, is move from just the general idea of formation, start to explore um, what that looks like, um, and especially the uniqueness of sexuality and, and the power that sexuality has to actually shape us for, for good or for, for ill. And so let's just turn our attention now to, to our specific topic. Um, and as I said, human sexuality has a profound power. It is a force that has massive impact on our lives, and it really does shape us in very real ways into the kinds of people we are becoming. The stewardship of our bodies and our sexuality. And maybe before we just dive back into our text, can I ask you just a question? And maybe this is a really awkward question for some of you. Um, what, was the, what was the first moment in your life that you would say you were first awakened to your sexuality? that you were a a sexual being. What awoke your sexual desires for the first time? Now turn to the person next to you and share with them what you... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) It's actually not my original joke. It's not my original joke, but anyways. Um, When we were chatting and and prepping stuff for this week, um, chatting with Ian and, and Luke, I was like, do you know what I think it is, guys? If I think hard, there was this movie in the 90s uh, when I was nine, ten, called Striptease, and it starred Demi Moore, and may, some of you might remember that, but we all kind of remembered the, DVD, the well, just Well, there wasn't DVDs back then. We're, we're not that young, I oh, know. It was VHSs, but we all kind of remembered the flippin' video cover that had essentially a naked woman on it. Um, and I think that was, I, st- I remember that movie was playing on TV, and I caught glimpses of it, and I think that was the first thing which which thought like, oh, there's something going on here. I like this. What, what's happening? Sexuality and its use is, is, is powerful and it's actually very, very serious. And so you see here in, in verse six of our, of our text, Paul writes this. He says, the Lord is an avenger, not that type of avenger. In, you know what I'm talking about? In all these things, talking about sexuality that he's just spoken about, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, Paul uses very, very strong language here. He's using warning language. He's taking this issue of sexuality and what it means for us and who we become through it very, very seriously. And I think you can can see why he's so strong on this. If you just go and quickly read one of his other passages on sexuality in in 1 Corinthians. And so we're not going to unpack this passage, but let me just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, all the way back in Genesis, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The headlines here is just, Paul's very clear that there there is something unique about sexual sin. Not all sins are alike, not all sins are the same. And he he highlights sexual sin here as as something in particular that has a a profound impact on us and can do a serious amount of damage to us. And I don't even pretend to have plumbed all the depths of of what Paul might be saying here. But suffice to say, sex is not just some bodily thing. It's not just bodily thing. It affects our souls and it affects our relationship with the Lord and affects the souls of others as well. And so stewardship of our sexuality is very, very important. And so Kruger spoke about Ian. Sorry, Ian. We call him Kruger often for short. He spoke about the puzzle box idea there, right? And it's so important for us and in the conversations we have is to, is to start and think, actually, what are the puzzle boxes that I've actually held my sexuality up to to try to make sense of it? What are the stories? What are the narratives that actually I've lived in and I've believed and my friends and those that I know and those that I work for actually live in and actually gives context to their sexuality for, for, for good or for ill? We've got to start there. And so let me quickly just throw out two other puzzle boxes that aren't the Jesus puzzle box, and then we'll get to the Jesus puzzle box. Um, and the first idea, the first puzzle box, and the first idea of, um, of sexuality is this, that we should be people who fear our desires. We should be people who fear our desires. And sometimes people have called this the idea of sex as gross, sex as gross. And I think this has been, in some ways, um, quite dominant at points, in the church's life and the church's history throughout the ages. You can take it all the way back to some of the early church fathers who really negatively influenced the church with regards to sex and the idea of sex with a massive fear of desire. And I think you see it in some of the teachings throughout church history. I think of the false teaching that Mary um, was ever virgin, that she remained a virgin for the rest of her life as this great example of holiness When you read the scriptures, and that's just not true, Jesus had half-brothers. They wrote books of the Bible, and and they weren't immaculately conceived. Mary had sex with Joseph and had other children. But I think there's a a taboo. Oh, if Mary's really holy, then she's always been a virgin. You think of the mandates for priests needing to be celibate. as another one. Uh, Philip Yancey, in his book Rumors of Another World, speaks about church history at some point where actually um, the clergy started getting very involved in mandating actually when people married people could actually have sex and they realize you know it's actually not good to have sex on the holy days and it's actually really not a good idea to have sex in the build-up to those holy days and actually certain days of the week it's also not great and obviously maybe certain times of the month it's also not great so actually it came down to in church history at one point there's actually 44 days in the year that married people are allowed to have sex and then 30 of those are going to be taken up with headaches and then it's just we're done. (laughs) I'm <laughs> joking. Uh, I don't want to go there, but I've had a headache this week, guys. I was that guy this week. But basically, sex becomes this taboo thing that in the church, you don't even know if married people should be doing it unless it's absolutely essential to procreate. That's kind of sometimes been the mentality, this fear mentality. And I actually think a lot of the, the secular world thinks that's what, that's what the church thinks. If you, I think if you pushed and asked. So that's fear fear your desires. That's one option. Here's the other extreme. It's not not fear your desires and and suppress them. No, 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 no. It is completely follow your desires. Go for it. If the other one is sex as gross, this is sex as God. It is the thing. The recipe for freedom in your life is to take all your sexual desires, find someone else who's going to consent to participate in them with you, and go for it. That is going to lead to fulfillment on so many levels. It is going to lead to freedom. And obviously, maybe sometimes you're not going to be able to find someone contenting and then go make a plan by yourself and watch porn. That's that's what it is. And I think, you know, people like Sigmund Freud, I think essentially set the modern world up to really believe that a lot of the evils in this world are really from our sexual repression. And actually, we can heal the world and make the world a better place By just freeing ourselves. There was a Michael Jackson quote there. I didn't mean that. Sorry. I didn't mean to link Michael Jackson, heal the world. I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying anything. But this has come to to be known as um, sex positive culture. Sex positive culture, right? Consent is really the only guiding force here that really sets any boundaries. And actually, to be honest, who we can get consent from is actually also tweaking and changing. And the conversation's real. Actually, do you have to be 18? Could you be 16? To be honest, uh, could we go 12? Could we go 10? Can people actually give consent when their mind is to actually having sex? That's where the conversation actually in large parts of the world is at the moment. Here's a quote from sexologist Carol Queen on this thing of um, sex positive culture. She says this. Sex positive. It's a simple yet radical affirmation that we each grow our own passions on a different medium. It's kind of like an, like an art. That instead of having two or three or even half dozen sexual orientations, we should be thinking in terms of millions. Sex positive respects each of our unique sexual profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us have actually been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual difference and possibility. This framework says, customize your life based on your personal preference. that's, that's That's a very different puzzle box. It's, it's, it's a completely different puzzle box, one I think that many people in this world subscribe to. Um, and this puzzle box and, and, and the, the, this culture, the sex-positive culture, is so strange because it actually has a massive contradiction at its heart. On the one hand, sex is the be-all and end-all. It is the biggest thing. It is absolutely tied to our identity. It is who we are having conversations with people is so hard because you're absolutely touching people on their most foundational level of being. It's the biggest deal in the world. And yet, in the same conversation from the the same culture is also saying, hey, sex is nothing. It's just an appetite. It's like food or drink. You just need to feed that thing. At the end of the day, it's just play for adults. Those are two radically different things that are being, that are, People are trying to hold together. And where we are now, what are we, 2023, we're, we're 60-odd years past the sexual revolution from the 60s that rocked the, the Western world. And I think we're in, a, we're in a position where we can legitimately ask, how has that been working out? Where are we actually? What, actually, what is the fruit of the sexual dev- revolution? Have we really been liberated from captivity? And Mary Everstadt, in her book Adam and Eve After the Pull*, wrote this. It'll come up on the screens. Contrary to conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many men and women. And second, its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and weakest shoulders in society, even as it has given extra strength to those already strongest and most predatory. Friends, Things like the invention of the pill and the condom and the whole idea of liberate yourself and sleep around. The thing that was meant to liberate women in many ways especially has turned out to be the thing that has hurt women and children far more than men. They have borne the brunt of the damage done by the sexual revolution. Consent is just proving not enough. Here's just another quote from a New York Times article which was called um, What's Lust Got to Do With It? Someone was writing very honestly. He said this, because they live in this, in this culture, in this world, getting naked and having sex with strangers is hard. We portray it as fun and we pretend it's fun, but people actually crave intimacy, which is a true story why Britain appointed a loneliness minister. Statistically, the facts are in especially with with, with with Gen Z now, people who were born sort of 1995 onward, people are actually having less sex than before because it's also carnage. And people are actually feeling more lonely than before. We're not living free. We're not living connected. We're not living joyfully. It's the exact opposite. And there is a lot of confusion and brokenness. And let me just... In this puzzle box, by actually just quoting a pass, which I just thought was such a, just a helpful thing that he said. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's on the screens. He just said this. When you get rid of the creator, you remove the concept of design. When you get rid of the concept of design, you get rid of purpose. When you get rid of the concept of purpose, you get rid of accountability. When you get rid of the accountability of design, you get rid of the fear of consequences. When you get rid of the fear when you get rid of the concept of fear of consequences, God is out of the equation. And the problem is, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so we're left with total sexual confusion. Now, we've all, we've all lived in different stories. We've all had different puzzle boxes that we've gone to. We've all believed different narratives. What does Jesus have? What does Jesus have for us? And that's where we're going to go next at the end of this this second part here, um, and Jesus doesn't tell us to fear our desires, sort of fear mongerer. He doesn't tell us to just follow your desires and go for it. Jesus calls us to direct our desires to Him, to Him. And if the one the one story was sex is gross, and the other one is sex as God, this is no sex and sexuality is genuinely a gift. It is genuinely a gift, and so. Let me just pull out four things from our first, uh, first Thessalonians text here and start with this, four brief things. Number one, sexual formation in the way of Jesus. It starts with a desire, a genuine desire to please God, to please God. Our deepest relational need is not with one another. It is with our creator. So verse one, we've read it before. I'll read it again. Paul says, finally then brothers, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. I think it comes down to a very, very simple question that I've just realized recently, which is so obvious that it sounds dumb that I don't think of this question more. Do you love God? (laughs) It's a simple question. Do you love Jesus? Are you in awe of Jesus? Because all of us are going to want to please someone that we love or please someone whose opinion we actually really respect and counts to us. And I felt just compelled last Sunday in worship to actually just stand up and just say, you know what? I've actually had lots of conversations with many of you recently and I've thought of my own life. And actually, I think it's a very simple question that actually brings a lot of clarity to moving us forward in every area of our lives. Do I love Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Jesus. It's such a key to wanting to pursue God's ways on absolutely anything, including, including our bodies and our, and our sexuality. And again, there is no doubt a moral component to what we're talking about here, but the heart is one of relationship with God. That's the key. That's the starting point. Pleasing Him is what we're after because that brings everyone joy. It brings us joy, it brings God joy, and it brings joy amongst people and creates human flourishing. That's what we're after. And so um, it's just a, a reminder or a call to us and to, to myself included is, is what, what ignites our, our, our love for God? Go back to the gospel. Go back to the central things of the Christian faith. Go back and ignite our hearts. Our, our sex and our nakedness and all that stuff is, is often such a, a confusing and a shameful thing. But if we just go back and remind ourselves often of God's heart, towards us. His love towards us displayed in the person of Jesus. Okay, hanging naked and ashamed on a tree for us in order to move towards us and bring us to a place of being clothed with love and righteousness and experiencing freedom. Man, we serve, we actually serve a good God who we can love and we should love. And I just want to encourage us to do that. Sorry, it's such an obvious thing, but it's the starting point. Number two, we align our sexual desires to God's design and his intent for them. So Paul in verse three says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, your formation, your increase in holiness. And the first thing he says is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So holiness, being sanctified, it's about trusting that God's ways are good that he knows what is best and then aligning our lives to that on whatever the topic is. It's, someone once said, uh, growth and holiness is, is just simply agreeing with Jesus more and more. Yeah, you're right on that. I'm sorry. And let me correct. Yeah, you're right on that. Sorry. Let me course correct a little bit. And, and practically on, on this topic of, of sex and sexuality, this is what it looks like for, for all people married and singles. This thing of abstaining from sexual immorality. That's not just for singles, by the way. That is for absolutely every Christ follower. Paul's saying, put off the old self and put on the new self. And that phrase, um, sexual immorality, there, it's, it's the Greek word porneia, which, which is where we get the word pornography from. And what it actually just simply means is it's basically a, a catch all t- term for any and all sexual activity that is outside of a marriage covenant between one man and one woman. That, that, that's God's intent and design. And sexual immorality is anything that is outside of that. Heterosexual, homosexual, we can keep going, whatever it might be. See, sex is a, a good gift from God. Sex is designed as part of marriage, and I think together both of them are an, an icon. They are an image of Christ and the church, of the of the very gospel itself, of the relationship between those two things. Paul makes that very clear in his whole teaching in Ephesians five. Sex and marriage is not the end game, and I, I want everyone to to hear this and believe this. Sex and marriage is not the end game. Sex and marriage is always a pointer beyond itself. It is merely an icon that points to something greater. This is about that. And what is that that? What is, the, what is the unity and the intimacy and the giving and the receiving and the relationship of trust and knowledge in marriage? What does that point to? It points to all that stuff that we experience ultimately in God. And that's why He's reconciled us to Him. All of that stuff in marriage is a shadow of what God has on offer for everyone. That's the offer of Jesus to the whole world. Come have intimate union with me. Come experience life and giving and receiving and trust and knowledge. I love this quote from Sam Albury that I, that I found in a book that was written by someone else, but they quoted this. And he wrote this. And Sam, Sam Albury, those of you who might not know, he is a same-sex attracted celibate pastor and theologian and he is such a blessing to the global church and here's his simple quote sex shows us the shape of the gospel sex is an, is an icon of this beautiful intimate relationship between god and his people sex shows us the shape of the gospel singleness shows us the satisfaction of the gospel the gospel is still the ultimate thing the gospel is the thing that both these things are are pointing towards Sex and marriage is just the, the picture of that. And singleness is here to display the actual fulfillment and expression of that. The, ra- the reality of it. The, fu- the, the, the fulfillment of it. And the satisfaction of it. I just love that quote. Sex shows us the shape of the gospel. Singleness shows us the satisfaction of the gospel. So abstaining from sexual immorality is, is the call to all of us. Three. Is everyone doing good? We're tracking. Three we understand that the restraint of sexual desire is very much tied to our transformation as people. So Paul writes in verse four and five. So he set it up and he said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he carries on. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God. Remember this from your... Children's church of pictures of different fruits. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's a general idea. Self-control in all its different faculties is a fruit of the Spirit. And it finds a specific expression in this topic right here. See, part of discipleship in general and maturity as people in general is learning to not always get what you want. Learning to not always get what you want. When, when, when parents spoil children and never say no to them, what happens? It has a very deforming effect on that child's character, which then dramatically affects them later in life with their interpersonal skills. It produces selfishness in them rather than servanthood. It's all about what we want, when we want it, how we want it. And God is saying here that not simply engaging In sex at will, deciding to to do that is actually a gift from God because it trains us in things like waiting and restraining and patience and serving. All the things that are the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus. Momentary, quote-unquote, happiness and saying yes to all of our immediate desires, whatever they might be, damages us. And we need to be very careful that when we start to train ourselves in one area, it has a massive ripple effect on the rest of our lives. And we know this practically. If I, if I keep giving my son sweets upon sweets upon sweets, it is going to make him happy. And I can keep going, and he'll be happy and happy and happy, but eventually they'll kill him. That's how it works. That's how it works. And The Bible knows the power of our sexual desires to form the whole of our lives and the whole of our characters. It has a very real place to help us be the people Jesus wants us to be. And these calls to self-control over lust, a control that, that, that knows the ways of God are, 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 are better than saying yes right now. The prohibitions save us from the deformation that happens in our lives. And, and beyond this, unchecked, it doesn't just harm us, It causes other people great harm as well. It's what he alludes to in verse 6 here, Paul. He says this, God's will, your sanctification is also that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter of sexuality. Another translation, I think it's the NIV, says that God doesn't want us to defraud each other sexually. I think that's a really, really helpful picture there. Appropriate use within the correct boundaries serves people and doesn't actually hurt not just you, but, but, but other people. It actually creates freedom and it creates blessing. And the great picture of this is always, I think, is, is fire. If you keep a fire in the fireplace, in a home, everybody wins. Everybody is warm. Everybody's happy. You take that fire out and you put it on the couch or you put it on the carpet and everybody gets burnt. Everybody gets burnt. It has its place. Here's the last thing. Number four. It'll probably take one minute to say. Is that we submit to the Holy Spirit of God and lean on his power and strength and presence in our lives. And I just I plucked that out of verse 8 right at the end where Paul ends this whole thing. Pointing to God and says, God who, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He says that because he's saying to us, we're not going to try to do this in our own willpower. That's going to cause us to fail. We have to do it in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Spirit, And that's going to look like prayerfully leaning on the transforming work of the Spirit, partnering with God to stir up our affections for Jesus, our love for Jesus, and at the same time, putting to death the deeds of the body. Those two things mutually work together beautifully to form us into the people that Jesus wants for us. As we submit ourselves to the, to the Spirit and His work in our lives, in this area, it forms us in, in far-reaching ways, not just in this area, in our lives. So that's the end of the second part. We're on to the final home straight. Is everyone alive? <laughs> okay, what I want to just simply do now is we, we know what formation is. We've looked at the very unique way that sexuality can form us, for good or for worse. And if we if we go with God on us, if we go with the grain of the universe that God has created, it actually leads to blessing and life and transformation in all sorts of areas in our lives. What I want to just pop up now is is just four practical examples of how um, habits and practices and things that we give ourselves to shape us in very, very real ways and have an impact on the, the whole of our lives. And so the four things we are going to chat about are pornography, masturbation, dating, and cohabitating, living together. Now let me just tell you, I was finishing up my PowerPoint on the plane on the way here, and, and all I had on my screen were these words. Porn, masturbation, it was beautiful. And, and, I, and I saw the, the, the Western Province golf team enjoying a good look at my, at my slides. Um, but let's just, let's just quickly jump in. Uh, porn, pornography. The scriptures speak very strongly about the thing of lust. And there's nothing more clearly lustful, I think we can agree on this, we can find common ground on this, um, than pornography. But again, the question is not just simply is pornography right or wrong? It's if I give myself to pornography, who am I becoming? Who am I be- becoming? And pornography is a massive problem, not only in the church, but in the whole world, and not only Christians. But non-Christians are, are realizing the damaging effects of it. Some of the stats say that over 90 plus men in the world watch pornography. And it, there's an increasing amount in, in women in the last 10 years who've been giving themselves to... Did I say 90 men? Yeah. Guys, only 90 men in the whole world have ever watched porn. <laughs> Do you know that? It's incredible. We're doing so well. I'm I'm feeling sick. Ninety <clears> percent <throat> of men, um, and 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 an increasing percent in women in the last uh, sort of decade, which has been really interesting. Um, uh, and here's a here's a just a very quick quote from a guy called Chris Hedges. He wrote a book called Empire of Illusion, and he just said the big thing with pornography is it replaces reality for fantasy. That's one of the main the main problems. And what happens is what happens is. This has been my experience, just so you know, and it's been the experience of many people in this room, I'm sure, is that you have learned a lot about sex. We have learned a lot about sex from pornography. That is the thing that has shaped us, many of us, as teenage men, as 20-year-olds, whatever it is. That is the that is the primary way that we learned about sex. And what is happening over the world is, is men are, 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 are seeing stuff there which is completely not real, bring it into their their. their their sex lives with their wives or their girlfriends or whatever it is, um, and it's creating real damaging things where women are forced to do things that should not be done in many ways. Porn does two things, among others. Number one, it, it actually affects our brain like drugs. That's what, that's what the research has been coming out in the last sort of 10, 10 years. Um, here's a quote from Dr. Trish Lee uh, on porn brain rewire. Porn is not real in any way, and yet there are few things that can set off the reward centers of the brain like porn. Both drugs and porn st- stimulate and dull the brain so that it operates in a state of constantly needing stimulation but, motiv- but, but cause us to not be motivated to do anything productive, leading to deep forms of depression. That's often the physical, and psychological effects of porn. And brain scans, The data, this is how the research is done. The brain scans have been done on drug use, drug addicts, and porn addicts. And they're basically the same. They're basically the same. Dopamine is released. It gives us that that, that hit. I mean, even social media has, a, has an element of this. And what it does is it gives us a reward. We want to come back and get that same high. But actually, to match that same level of experience high, you need a bigger hit. And so what ends up happening is you need more and more either explicit forms of, of pornography, and in actually huge parts of, of the, the porn intake has, has gotten extremely violent, not just sexual, but violent. And I think of a, a classic story of the, the, the very well-known serial killer Ted Bundy in the States. And you listen to his interview. I could be wrong, but I believe he became a, apparently a Christian before he died. I, I could be wrong in that. But his interview that I think Focus on the Family did with him the day before he was executed Um, for um, raping and murdering countless women, he linked it straight up to pornography. He said, I was a porn addict, and it got worse and worse and worse until I had to act things out, and then things got more violent and more violent. That was the story of of Ted Bundy. Let me just throw up quickly, just to hear these effects from a very big icon in the, in the, the modern world. If you are below 30, you may know who Billie Eilish is. If you're above 30, you may have no idea who this person is but she's very, very popular. Um, she's a singer. She wrote this. I think porn is a disgrace. I used to watch a lot of porn, to be honest. She's not old. She, I think she's 20, 24, 23 now. Somewhere around. I started watching porn when I was like 11. It helped me feel cool and like one of the guys. But I think it it really destroyed my brain, and I feel incredibly devastated that I was exposed to so much porn. And she added, saying, that she ended up suffering nightmares because some of the content that she watched was, was so violent and abusive. So it has a negative effect on our brain, which is a huge forming aspect of us. And also it affects our relationships. People who are in cycles of, of, of pornography and addiction or whatever it might be, in terms of how long that is with every day or every week or every month, have been known. It's, 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 it's seen. In fact, someone told me about this in their life earlier in the year in my church. Man, I become so moody and withdrawn when I'm in this cycle. You lose, uh, 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 you lose empathy. You, uh, you, you value women less because women are increasingly just commodified. You start to view relationships very differently. And actually on the whole back end of porn as well, you've got a whole sex tra- trafficking industry that is happening in the background that in many ways is being funded by this. And it just teaches us in relationships to be people who, instead of partaking, are just simply taking. Sex is not just sex. Sex is powerful. Let's just remind ourselves of that. And it doesn't just stay in its isolated part of our lives. It affects the totality of our lives. And it shapes us and forms us. Um, And I just want to let you know of a resource journey. Um, I mean, there's probably many of them. Maybe you've got ones here. But one that... One that Basically, I went on, and Ian led me on it a bunch of years ago. He called it the 100-day challenge, and I think someone kind of led him on it. And I, and I think you've run it a lot in, in Comic-Con Rondebash. It's really an amazing journey resource of 100 days of both the physical, the mental, the spiritual breaking of the, the power and the, the grip that pornography can have on our lives. And you can chat to Ian and find out more about that. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Okay, masturbation let's go. Um, We're almost finished, guys. Um, Masturbation. Let me just take a sip of water. I got a little bit, yeah, yeah, I thought I'd just make sure we get the attention. There's absolutely nothing in the Bible about masturbation. If you turn to Ecclesiastes 9.10 and someone says when they read it, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, that is a bad proof text. That is a bad proof text to use for masturbation. Have I got your attention? Bring it back. Bring it back. So I was doing so well and I derailed it. <clears throat> I derailed it. So the, the, the Bible doesn't directly speak to masturbation. However, um, I want to point to briefly to, to two theologians who I think weigh in quite clearly and helpfully on this matter. Uh, the first is, is Augustine. He's the North African Bishop of Hippo from the 5th century. He's just an amazing giant of theology in church history. Um, and his way of describing sin in general was that he said the effect of sin is that it causes us as human beings to be curved in on ourselves. That's the way that he spoke of sin. It's the opposite of the outward-looking, other-serving Trinitarian God in whose image we, we, we're meant to be becoming. Instead of being like the God, the triune God who, who gives life and breath to everyone, sin causes us to curve in on ourselves. And I think masturbation does something similar. And C.S. Lewis picks up, picks up on that very clearly. And so I want to just read an extended um, quote from C.S. Lewis. He, 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 someone wrote to him asking the question of masturbation, and this was his response. For me, and it'll be up on the screens, for me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which, in lawful use, leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality in that of another, and finally in children and even grandchildren, and it turns it back. It sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with the real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, They become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. And it is not only the faculty of love which is thus sterilized, forced back on itself, but also the faculty of imagination. The true exercise of imagination, in my view, is A, to help us to understand other people, and B, to respond to, and some of us, to produce art. But it has also a bad use to provide for us in shadowy form a substitute for virtues, successes, successes, distinctions, etc., which ought to be sought outside in the real world. E.g. example, picturing all I'd do if I were rich, instead of actually earning and saving. Masturbation involves this abuse of imagination in erotic matters, which I think is bad in itself, and thereby encourages a similar abuse of it. In all spheres again how sex affects all spheres of our life after all almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves out of the little dark prison we are all born in masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided which retard this process the danger is that of coming to love the prison and I cannot improve on that so I'm just gonna leave it right there. But I think it speaks quite powerfully into that thing of the question the question is not simply is this right or wrong. The question is who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? Dating. Dating, practical example number three. Now, dating varies hugely from culture to culture, depending on, on where you've grown up in. And, and and different cultures have come on different journeys and are either different places, you know, where we find ourselves today. And I think the concept of what you could term maybe courtship, which is maybe a really old word for some of you, um, which is, is still prevalent in, in some cultures today, is kind of more in the past for others. But what that notion involved was really um, the, the families of, of both prospective parties getting involved, things like character and worth and sometimes provision in the case of men. These things were all high up on the agenda on the, the priority order, on the, dis, on the discussion table. And all of this sort of happened and eventually led to engagement. And, and sometimes there was, there was straight up sort of, um, what's the word, uh, 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 arranged marriages. Um, but, but other times not. That was just part of the process. But most of the modern Western world, I think, um, is no longer there. I think many of us in the room, are, are that's not our experience. and has not been our experience. We've been very much influenced by the dating scene that really kicked off in America and um, early 20th century was hitting the high in sort of the 1950s and has influenced all of us really through, through movies. Hollywood movies and TV series that we've watched for 60 years have influenced us. And what, what started happening, and we've all taken that on board, was actually exploring romantic relationships now. It doesn't happen in the family. It actually happens um, outside of the home. And it really revolves around fun and entertainment. And is that what generally the dating team is not about? We go together with someone and we go to the movies or we go for the ice cream or we go for a walk or whatever it might be. That's where the exploration normally happens. But this has now evolved as well. We live in a digital world and dating has moved into the online sphere now. Um, 20 odd years ago, it used to be in chat rooms. My brother and sister-in-law met in a chat room in 1999 and I love those guys. And so I'm not anti-chat rooms, am not anti-dating. That's, that's not the thing here. Um, Where we are now is not chat rooms, we are Tinder and Bumble and things like Grindr, um, and, uh, and, and many people use those apps, but even those apps have now spawned a further culture going out of dating, which is just simply hookup culture, hookup culture, where people just use those apps to actually just find people to randomly have sex with. That is one of the major uses of those dating apps in the world today. Sometimes people will just try to line up several people in one night through the app. Uh, someone said, it's basically Mr. Delivery for you to just order a hot person that you want to sleep with. That's essentially what, what, what it's turned into. This is completely superficial. I think I hope, I hope we see that. It's completely superficial. It's based on nothing but basically a profile picture um, and a little bit of a bio description. Mary Everstadt, I'll just quote her again. We quoted earlier. She said, it's a wildly contradictory mix of chatter about how wonderful it is that women are now all liberated for sexual fun in this hookup culture, but also how mysteriously impossible it has become to find a good, steady, committed boyfriend at the same time. That's where dating and and online apps um, in many ways have been leading the world. And you just compare in a sense, dating culture to maybe how it could be done in the way of Jesus. I don't. I don't think the Bible sort of prescribes a, a method, a methodology of, of five things. But but just hear me out. Current dating culture essentially starts with, "Cool, are you hot? Okay, can I have a, a kiff exciting, wonderful time with you? Kiff, cool." Tick, number two, three. Is there then maybe some potential here? It never starts here. It always starts up there. Is there maybe some potential here for us to you know have a friendship? And is there maybe a bit of a vision for our lives, cool, and then maybe we should consider marriage. That is normally the order. What if the way of Jesus was a little different? And actually, and I don't think I intended this in my life, but this is in many ways um, my story with, with, with my wife, Michonne. Um What if you start with, actually, I meet someone, and can I actually offer just sacrificial love and care to this person as a fellow image bearer of God and, and as a, a son or a daughter of God? And then are we friends who actually just connect well and, and resonate of, of the big things in life, who God is and what's important? And then maybe, hey, could we actually build a life of excitement and, and build a vision for what God could be calling both of us to in his, in his great mandate, in his great commission for, for his people? And often what happens, and it's the story of my relationship, is actually, hmm, suddenly I'm actually attracted to you. And okay, let's, let's commit to one another. And it's consummated in the the commitment of of marriage and and sex. And that's my story. That's my dating story. And so the question on dating apps is, it is it can you use dating apps? Is it should you use dating apps? It's the wrong question. The question is, who are you becoming in the way you go about finding a spouse? Last thing. We're an hour in, and I'm going to end it right now. Here's the final thing I've got to say. And the final example is cohabitation, cohabitation, people living together. What does that do to us? What does that form us into? I'm talking about here people romantically together and living together who are not married. And uh, this is something that's obviously practiced by many people who would not consider themselves Christ followers, but actually as a pastor, you come across tons of people who want to justify and say, this is a great idea. um, And I really don't think Jesus has a problem with us living together um, before we get married. Um, sometimes they will say, we're living together, and we're not sleeping together. We've been living together for two years, and we're not sleeping together. And I think if that's the case, on another side of the spectrum, there's a whole other problem that you've got to ask questions for there, okay? But what I want to put before you here is some research results as a display of who people become if they choose to live together before marriage. And this comes from Civitas. It's the Institute for the the Study of Civil Society. And their study was simply called The Impact of Cohabitation on People and Society. And the riveting end to this talk will be me reading statistics to you. Here we go. Cohabiting relationships are fragile. They are always more likely to break up than marriages entered into at the same time, regardless of age or income. On average, cohabitations last less than two years before breaking up or converting to marriage. Less than 4% of cohabitations last for 10 years or more. Cohabiting also influences later marriages. The more often and the longer that men and women cohabit, the more likely they are to divorce later. Both men and women in cohabiting relationships are more likely to be unfaithful to their partners than married people. At all socioeconomic levels, cohabiting couples accumulate less wealth than married couples. Married men earn 10 to 40% more than single or cohabiting men, and they are more successful in their careers, particularly when they become fathers. Married women without children earn about the same as childless single or cohabiting women. All women who take time out of employment to have children lose some earning power, whether they are married or not. However, cohabiting and lone mothers often lack access to the father's income, making it more difficult to balance their caring responsibilities with their careers. Cohabitants have more health problems than married people, probably because cohabitants put up with behavior in their partners, which husbands and wives would discourage, particularly regarding smoking, alcohol, and substance abuse. Cohabitants are much more likely to suffer from depression than married people. Women in cohabiting relationships are more likely than wives to be abused. In one study, marital status was the strongest predictor of abuse ahead of race, age, education, or housing conditions. Lastly, children born to cohabiting parents are more likely to experience a series of disruptions in their family life which can have negative consequences for their emotional and educational development. Children living with cohabited couples do less well at school and are more likely to suffer from emotional problems than children of married couples. Who are we becoming? And what future are we passing on to the next generation? I think these are the questions that um, we need to think about and we need to consider when something is trivial as living with someone comes into our midst so let me just end by saying this maybe close your eyes as I say this this last paragraph the invitation for us and the invitation for the world from Jesus is this come to me receive salvation receive power bring to me your past bring to me your present and walk with me Follow me, direct your desires towards me, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and come and find rest for your souls. Should I pray for us? Anna, do you want to close in prayer? Anna's going to come up and, and close in prayer.
1: Thank you so much, Ian and Carl. Um it's so easy to sometimes think even as a pastor that um or forget so easily that who we shepherding live in the same culture that everybody else is living in we we live in this culture we're impacted by everything that Carl and Ian just mentioned and i was sitting there going when you were going through that last four i can think of conversations i've had in the last year with every single one of those i'm going this is in our church this is this is in this room And not because of our genius, it just so happened that every day we're busy going through the life of David, and over the last three weeks we've gone Bathsheba, then his confession and repentance, then the consequences. And I'm just going, hey, God, like, you're very kind to us. I think in God's kindness, He brings truth to us like this, and kindness, He leads us to these moments. And I'd love to just pray for us for that grace over this this evening that we, if we're going to serve and love our city and our friends that don't know christ it starts with god doing something in us saying hey we we get it we understand that Um, i'm a husband to a wife i'm a father to a daughter every time i hear those porn stats i'm going what does a young woman think when she thinks that nine out of ten guys are watching porn what does wives think of their husbands what's going on inside of us? we are broken that need christ to to do this and just before i pray if any of this stuff is is heavy on your heart and you feel hey what do i do with it i want to encourage you this evening to take some time out and spend some time with jesus and go lord jesus this is me um we just um in our in our series on david and you don't know how to pray go read psalm 51. take psalm 51 and just read it to jesus as as it's your prayer just go to him and say lord jesus here i am this is where i'm at this is where i'm stuck in maybe you yeah this evening you you didn't come for equipping or training, but you stumble into an evening like this, and you're going, whoa, like, this is hectic, and hey, but this is me. We can go to Christ. We can take it to him. And if you don't know what to pray and how to pray, go to Psalm. Find a Bible. Find, you can on- online find the passage. But just read Psalm 51 to yourself. Just read it to Jesus. Make it your prayer. Let me pray for us this evening. Lord Jesus, we don't come to you as perfect people. Um, we come as people that live in this society, in this culture, in this day and age. We also recognize that you in your sovereign design destined for us to live in this era you understand our brokenness you you invite us to come in our tiredness our brokenness and and, and our failure to you you invite us to come that you are you are humble and you are gentle towards us so i want to come with us that we come to you this weekend that you would form us more and more towards jesus and not towards the culture that we would love you more than we would love this world or love ourselves. That we would we would genuinely fall in love with you, Jesus. That that love for you would override any other desires we have. That we would, like Ian said, become more and more like Christ. That we would be formed towards Christ-likeness in every aspect of our lives. Particularly this area in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to hand over to Tix. He's going to Give us some of the logistics for um, tomorrow.